Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to see your son and to consider who he is, to learn more about him so that we might worship him, so that Christ might be formed in our lives. And I pray that this message will help to accomplish that end. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was my second year of college, and I was taking an English class, and I remember sitting at my desk preparing myself for the final exam. The professor walked in solemnly and placed the following examination on all of our desks. It was actually not just an English exam, but a comprehensive exam with different fields of studies. And, and here are some of the questions. Engineering. The disassembled parts of a high-powered rifle have been placed in a box on your desk. You'll also find an instruction manual printed in Swahili. In 10 minutes, a hungry Bengal tiger will be admitted to the room. Take whatever action you feel appropriate. Be prepared to justify your decision. Biology. Create life. Estimate the difference in subsequent human culture if this form of life had been developed 500 million years earlier with special attention to its probable effect on the English parliamentary system. Prove your thesis. Music. Write a piano concerto. Orchestrate and perform it with flute and drum. And then public speaking. 2,500 riot-crazed aborigines are storming the classroom. Calm them. You may use any ancient language you like, except Latin or Greek. Now, by this point in time, we realized that this was actually a joke. Which, during an exam, uh, is kind of helpful and necessary because there's a lot of pressure when you take an exam, right? If you fail the exam, there will be consequences. You might have to retake the class. You might lose your scholarship. You may not get into your dream school. And if you get anxious enough, you can believe that every exam will determine your destiny as a human being. Well, there is an exam a specific exam question that actually does determine your destiny. Now, as you recall, uh, Luke chapters 8 and 9 are all about the education of the disciples. They are being trained to take over Jesus' ministry. Jesus peppers them with questions. They answer questions. But here we see the question of all questions in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Now, it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. The whole narrative is building to this moment. After all, the miracles of healing, the various sermons, 
the spectacular things that they have seen Jesus do after seeing Jesus uh, basically confront the powers that be. After feeling all the tension that is starting to surround Jesus, who becomes a controversial figure, Jesus turns around and asks them a final exam question. And the, and the question is, who am I? And the reason why this is so important is because how you answer this question is the most important exam question of your life. Do you get Jesus right? Uh, this past week, I went to a funeral of a long family friend and and as he was resting there in the, in the coffin, he wasn't in the coffin. His body was in the coffin, but his soul was someplace else. Where he was ultimately laid to rest depended on how we answered this question, who is Jesus? And there's really two possible destinations, agreed? There is heaven and there is hell. And get this, those who get Jesus wrong go to hell. Now, some of you might just chafe at that and say, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that if we get Jesus wrong, if we have some mistaken impressions of him, God's going to send us to hell, Jesus is going to send us to hell. Well, that's, that's not my Jesus. Well, how do you know that that view of Jesus that you have is correct? Getting Jesus right Answering the question, who is Jesus, is the most important exam question of your life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, basically the wrong view of Jesus, then the right view of Jesus, and the refined view of Jesus, so that you can get Jesus right. And we'll start with the wrong view of Jesus, starting in verse 18. Now what happened that he was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. And so if you sync up this passage with uh, what's going on in Jesus's ministry, what you'll find is that there's actually a year-long gap between the feeding of the 5,000 and this dialogue that he has with his disciples. We know from the Gospel of Mark that he went north, he ministered to various Gentiles, but Luke is compressing the narrative because chapters 8 and 9 are all about all the speculation that is surrounding Jesus at this time. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm? Remember the question the disciples asked? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water that they obey him? After Jesus sends out uh, his apostles to minister in Judea, there's palace intrigue and Herod asks the question, who is this about whom I hear such things? And the answer to that question is implied when Jesus feeds the 5,000 where all of them experience the power and provision of Jesus. And now Jesus is praying, and great things happen after Jesus prays. It, it's a signal that something important is about to take place. After praying, he asked them, his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? He's not asking, well, who do you think I am? But, but what about the crowds? And, and this is their answer. John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old have has risen. This is a running theory. Remember, when Herod asked this question, it was the same answer. All these things are, there's rumors circulating around about who he might be. One of them is John the Baptist. 
You know, John the Baptist, he was uh, the prophet who broke the 400 years of silence. He spoke truth to power. He confronted Herod, the religious leaders. He, he confronted Roman soldiers. He was a revolutionary, so to speak. He spoke with power and conviction. And when he was beheaded, there was this belief that God was not yet done with him, that perhaps he raised him from the dead. The second option is Elijah. We learn from Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now remember, Elijah was a prophet who did not die. He was taken up to heaven. And so popular belief was that since he didn't die, he would come back again and he would precede the great day of the Lord. Then you have a prophet of old. We know from Deuteronomy 18, 15, that Moses promised that there would always be a successor. And so you have some of the great prophets like Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. Perhaps Jesus is just another prophet in this long line of prophecies, prophets. Now, note, John the Baptist, Elijah, prophet of old, what's not mentioned that would be rather surprising? The Messiah. I mean, in Luke 3.15, the crowds are listening to John the Baptist, and this is what they're speculating. They're questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So if they make this connection with John, why aren't they making it with Jesus? After two and a half years of ministry, after all the healing, the expulsion of demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, teaching with power and conviction, challenging uh, the religious authorities, why isn't there more speculation that Jesus is the Christ? Now, it's possible that no one was allowed to say that because of the adversarial relationship that he had with the Pharisees and the scribes. Another possibility is that they had a very narrow, self-serving view of the Messiah. That the Messiah was to lead a revolution. He was to be a political figure. They have languished under Rome long enough. And when the Messiah comes, he would confront the powers that be. He would liberate Israel so that they can once again serve God faithfully in the land that God promised to them. They were not ready to consider him as the king until he measured up to this self-serving expectation. See, that was what was flavoring their understanding of the Messiah, which was the Messiah, the Messiah that they wanted. They were getting Jesus wrong. So Jesus then asked for the right view of Jesus. He turns his attention to the disciples. He says in verse 20, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? After two and a half years, you've watched me cast out demons. You're there when I raised people from the dead. You heard all of my teaching about the kingdom of heaven. You were there passing out the food as it was multiplying to feed the 5,000. 
After all of this, Peter, James, John, who do you say that I am? Now, we have a natural response to this question, who is Jesus? Well, he is Jesus Christ, of course. There, there can be an unthinking indoctrination. I was a missionary in Hungary for a couple of years, and we used to hand out these spiritual interest surveys at the beginning of every semester, and there were, there were two primary questions. One, we would ask, do you believe in God? And then the second question would be, who is Jesus? When we got all the surveys back, we were struck by how often people would answer the question. And this was the most popular answer. Do you believe in God? Do you know what they said? No. But then in the follow-up question, what was asked was, who is Jesus? And they would answer, the Son of God. Because that was how they were raised. I don't believe in God, but Jesus is the Son of God. There, there's an unthinking, of course, that's what it is. And, and because of that, we can, we can lose the gravity of this question and of this declaration. This was something that would divide them from the religious authorities. This was a, a question that would change their life. Will they just say that he's a prophet? Will they just say that he's a teacher? All of those things are true. But Jesus is not content with baby steps to getting it right. How would Peter answer this question? He says, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now, once again, this term Christ, when we hear the word Jesus Christ, people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. I'm Dave Hintz. He's Jesus Christ. But what is not understood is that Christ is more than a last name. It is a, a, a title, right? It is, it is a Greek translation of what word? The Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. When Samuel discovered David, he anointed him with oil to declare him and to signify that he is the king. David was the anointed one. And it is promised to him that God would always have one of his descendants on the throne. And not only was David promised to always have one of his descendants on the throne, there was going to be a special relationship that God was going to have with David's sons. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that I will be a father to him, his sons, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So God is going to be a father, and a good father disciplines, right? really loved Aline's testimony where she was informed by her parents that you will be doing this, right? That's good parenting right there. So in this case, God is the father to whoever sits on David's throne. Now, this would be good news if they were always obedient. But what we see is later on in Scripture, in Psalm 89, it's called a royal psalm. It's a psalm about the king. That the actions of David's sons impact the rest of the kingdom. 
in Psalm 89, 31. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So if a son of David breaks the law of Moses, everyone will suffer. Now, if you guys are in Bible reading plans right now, you might navigate through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And what's interesting is there's always a judgment about the kings. King Josiah, good or bad king? He was a good king, right? How about Ahaz? Uh, bad king, right? Zedekiah, bad king. Hezekiah, good king. There's always this declaration. And, and the kings who were faithful, what happened to Israel or Judah under their faithful reign? They prospered, right? And so there's always this understanding that the nation would rise and fall with a king. And so here you have Israel, who's conquered by Rome, and there is this understanding that if you get a good king, if the Messiah comes back, then God is going to liberate Israel. And so when Jesus says that you're the Christ, he's pointing back to that reality, and this would be something that would be extremely exciting. Jesus finally went out and said it. He is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to liberate his people. But then what does Jesus say? And strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. I am the Messiah, but not in the way you think. He gives some nuance. He offers a refined view of Jesus. Peter gets the answer correct. But Peter, don't you go blabbing this to everybody, okay? I'm going to give you a little bit of further information. Look at verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here he conflates the Messiah and the Son of Man. And remember the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7? He comes back in glory. The Son of Man is this glorious figure. In Ezekiel, he's also a suffering figure. And, and here Jesus calls himself, designates himself the Son of Man. You got it right. I'm also the Son of Man. And then he says something shocking. The Son of Man must, must it is decreed. It has been decided. This needs to happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Now, this doesn't fit into the popular conception of the Messiah. The Messiah is to cause other people to suffer. He is to reject his enemies he is to kill his opponents. He is to take on and assault the unrighteous. He will not be defeated. He will defeat other people. That's what the Messiah does. But in this case, he suffers, he's rejected, and he is killed by the unrighteous. Well, that would make sense. Romans rise up. They don't want the Jewish king. They take him out. But no, he is rejected he suffers at the hands of, and he is murdered by the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes. The righteous 
leaders of Israel, the people who were the spiritual authorities, who, who understood the law, who taught the law, who exemplified it. These are the ones who will be killing the Messiah. This doesn't make sense. In fact, it's very strategic that Jesus makes sure that Peter gets the answer right and says, you're right. Okay, we're all set. You're right. You're holding on to that conviction here. Okay, now let me tell you the rest of the story. This is shocking. But then he says, on the third day will be raised. On the third day will be raised. They're going to do all this to me, but I'm making a comeback. On the third day, I will rise again. You see, his mission is to take out the true enemy of any Messiah. Right? Queen Elizabeth reigned for a long time until what happened? She died. Right? Often we think about what can end the reign of a king. Well, it could be the kingdom is conquered and the king surrenders. But what conquers every king and what ends the reign of every king is death. They are king, they're in control until they die. And so here is this Messiah. He's going to come, he will take his throne, and then he will never die. There will be no end to his reign. He suffers. He's rejected. He is killed, but then he's raised from the dead so that he can rule and ultimately be the king of kings. Paul teaches us in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the ruler of the universe. Now, how popular is this perception of Jesus? Jesus is the divine son of God. He is a Lord and ruler of the universe. And you have to do what he says. You have to do what he says. See, a lot of people don't like this version of Christianity. And in its place, they, they adopt a substitute religion called Jesusanity. Okay, not Christianity. You take Christ out of it. You strip him of his deity, you strip him of his divine authority, and what you have is an ancient peasant who roamed the countryside, teaching people to love each other and spoke the truth to power and groomed his beard, right? As the hippie Jesus, Jesus sanity, right? He, he, he is about being an example and giving people hope and being a model, and he has no real claim over your life. His teachings, they're mere suggestions. He doesn't have authority to, to enforce them because he's really not alive, although we will claim that he's alive in our hearts. And so what happens is that people take Jesus and they co-opt Jesus into whatever spiritual understanding they desire. Did you know that Muslims actually believe that Jesus is a prophet? They actually believe that he didn't actually die on the cross but was taken up to heaven and he's going to come back in the Muslim version of the end times and then he'll die. Hindus 
believe that Jesus is a, an incarnation of Vishnu, their, their blue-skinned blue god. I know, but he didn't have blue skin, obviously. Liberal theologians reject the miracles of Jesus and still claim to believe in Jesus. Adolf von Harnack, a well-known liberal theologian of a century ago, rejected the Gospel of John, went through the synoptic Gospels and took out all the miracles, and he still claimed to respect and be a follower of Jesus. And this is what somebody said about him. This is a great burn. The Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through the 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. Right? People see themselves in Jesus. And they like that. He becomes the idealized form of their ideals. Elton John once said, I think Jesus was a compassionate, super-intelligent gay man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave the people who crucified him. Jesus wanted us to be loving and forgiving, right? Jesus is an extension of Elton John's personal ideals. And it's kind of like that young couple that falls in love and they go through the infatuation phase where they basically see what they want to see in the other person. And then reality comes, and they realize that that person is capable of things like body odor, can be slightly irritating at times. Those little ticks that you thought were cute are actually pretty annoying. When reality comes, it does cause a reevaluation. And I meet so many people who, who say they believe in Jesus, but they've never actually considered what he said. When Jesus spoke of eating his body and drinking his blood, remember what everyone did? It's like, uh, what are you talking about? This is a hard saying, who can believe it? And Jesus has many hard sayings that are tough for many people to believe. He says in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait a second, Jesus. You're telling me that you've never lusted? Matthew 13, 42, And throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, Jesus, I thought you were unconditionally loving. What is all this talk about hell and judgment? Isn't it odd that Jesus is the one who gives us the most clear articulations of hell in the Bible? Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? You mean that Jesus actually wants me to obey him? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, that's such a narrow view that there's only salvation through Jesus. That's more like Fred Phelps than Jesus Christ. When you understand what Jesus teaches, he is a man to be reckoned with. In fact, he's more than a man. He's the divine son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah who actually expects you to do what he says. And we'll get this. We'll judge you if you don't. You see, people love Jesus, but they love their version of Jesus. And that's not Jesus. When Jesus shows himself or who he really is, he forces a decision. He forces a choice. They saw, the disciples saw who Jesus really is. 
And the question is, will they get Jesus right? Will they confess him not just to be the Christ, but to be the king, to be in charge? You see, when you confess Jesus as the Christ, you are making some affirmations about yourself and you're making some affirmations about him. One, if you confess him as the Christ, the king, that means you're not the king. You are not in charge. You're not in charge. Did you know that that desire to be in charge is just another word for autonomy? Eve is in the garden. God tells her that you are not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan tempts her. And she thinks, you know, it'd be nice not to have to run to God all the time to figure out what's good and evil. I'll get this knowledge, therefore I won't need him to tell me. I'll be autonomous. I can make this decision for myself. And what happened? I mean, a lot of times people love workspace religion. If I do this, I get this in return. I can somehow do these works, but God under my debt, he'll be obligated to do what I ask him to do because I've done all these good works. People like the idea of no religion because that means you can do what you want. People might even practice self-forgiveness and learn how to forgive themselves. And when you think about it, what they're saying is, I have sinned against myself. And so I need to forgive myself for my sin against myself. Does that even make sense? That's autonomous religion. But when we say Jesus is the Christ, you are actually under him. You are to do what he says. And when you don't do what he says, when you don't do what his father says, do you know what that's called? Sin. And who sins? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. When you reject God and his authority, that is sin. And what is the consequence of sin? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Death is the promised punishment to all who rebel against God. So according to Jesus and according to the Bible, when you sin against God, when you reject God, what do you deserve? You deserve death. And death is... As you look at in Genesis, comes in various phases. There's a separation that Adam and Eve have from each other, uh, from God. The soul is ripped from their body. There's a separation there. But if they die in that state, they are eternally separated from God. That is the doctrine of hell. And if they died in that separated state, right, that's where they would go. If you get Jesus wrong and you reject him as your authority and king, where do you go? I mean, I was moved by the testimonies that both of those girls had, a, uh, had an understanding that that was their destiny. Do you believe that, or do you think Jesus was just making that up to try to intimidate and scare people into compliance? Was he really speaking from God when he taught those doctrines? Secondly, you're not in control, but Jesus is in control. When Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, he essentially kneeled before the king. Jesus, you are in charge. He trusted that Jesus would be the one to fulfill the promises of Scripture. Now, while Jesus may not have followed the script, even though uh, Jesus did not go and take over Jerusalem at that moment, even though he allowed himself to be rejected and to suffer and to be crucified, and even though Peter's Obedience and compliance during that time was greatly challenged and compromised. In the end, Peter still bowed the knee. Jesus would suffer and die, 
and Peter would pick up his cross and follow Jesus to the very end. You see, it's not enough to just get the right information about Jesus. It's not just enough to just confess him as king. In fact, when you look at Luke, you see other people who confess Jesus as king. The demoniac in Luke 5, 34 says that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Right? The demoniac. Does he get Jesus right? Technically. The Gerasene demoniac says, what have we to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Did they get Jesus right? You see, you can get the right answer, but Jesus is looking more for the right response. To get Jesus right involves more than just having the Sunday school answer about who is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ. To get Jesus right means that you now rightly relate to him, which is he's here and you are here. He is the king. You are his willing servant. You believe what he tells you to believe, right? Jesus teaches about hell. Well, it must be true because he taught it. He teaches us about how to live our life. Well, it must be true because he taught it. But you also believe that when he said that he gave his life as a ransom for many, that is also true. And I need that ransom because I can't pay for my own sin. See, when Jesus died, he died the death you deserved. All the sin that you committed was actually placed upon him. And then God raised him from the dead to show that that payment is paid in full so that when you come to Jesus, your ransom has been paid. You can be set free from the power and dominion of sin. And do you know why he wants to release you from the power and dominion of sin? One, because he loves you, right? And how is somebody released from the power and dominion of sin? When they are under the power and dominion of Jesus Christ. Who do you want to have as your king? You do want to have as your king. Do you trust yourself to lead your life? to be your own king, to divine your own existence. That's an exercise of futility. But did you know that's exactly what Satan wants for you? The gospel of self-worship is fine with you. Satan is fine with you worshiping anyone but Jesus. You can worship Allah, right? You, you, can, you can worship yourself. You can worship some trees. Just don't worship Jesus, and I'll be fine with that. Where the gospel is the good news is you can be free to worship Jesus who came, died, and rose again so that he can be in charge of your life and lead you in the path of righteousness. And most importantly, bring you into a kingdom to come. Because remember, the first enemy he was going to defeat is death. The second enemy he's going to de defeat are all those who oppose him and reject him because someday Jesus is going to come back and he's actually going to go to Jerusalem and, and, and take his kingdom there. And all those who do not reject him, who accept him, who follow him, who bow the knee, who get Jesus right, will reign with him. And that is the great hope we have. In the end, Jesus will reign and those who get Jesus right will reign with him. Do you have Jesus right? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the
clear call to get Jesus right. Jesus asked Peter that question, and for that matter, he asked all of us, who do you say that I am? And I pray that we won't just give the Sunday school answer, but a heartfelt answer. One where we rightly relate to you, where we see you as king, believe you as king, and that belief will bleed over to conviction to live under your kind, loving rule. I pray for anybody who's on the outside looking in, that this message will be greatly assisted by the Holy Spirit, that it won't arrest them until they deal with it. I pray for any believer who is not living like Jesus is king, that they will surrender those areas of their life that they're still holding on to. And I pray for those who have surrendered that will be greatly encouraged to keep on surrendering and living under the lordship of Christ until his kingdom comes. In Christ's name, amen.